Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in for Simon Morris. This week on At The Movies, another comic book franchise comes to an end. Or does it? The power. The pain. It's all coming out at once. It scares me. A brilliant philologist invents a lucrative franchise of his own. Turned out the new man, Tolkien. It's pronounced Tolkien. And a German artist finds his voice. Glaub mir, stimmt alles nicht, was ich deinem Alter. Dein Schwiegervater? Das ist nicht die Erbmasse, die ich unseren Nachkommen wünsche. Kann er uns nicht einfach in Ruhe lassen? I've been thinking a lot this week about memory. Partly because while watching Dark Phoenix, I found myself thinking, I've seen this before somewhere, at least more so than usual. And sure enough, I had seen a version of that story before, almost 20 years ago, the second of the original X-Men movies also contained the story of Jean Grey's transformation into the most powerful of all the mutants. But then our other films also examine the nature of memory in different and arguably more interesting ways. Tolkien is a biography of the writer of The Hobbit, which implies that his early life is full of clues to the fantasy world of his books, that imagination is not much more than a code book for the subconscious. And Never Look Away is the story of another artist, one who chose to share his memories with the filmmaker, but then decided to keep his authorization to himself. The result of that was that all the names had to be changed, but the remarkable story itself is intact. Never Look Away is also about how important art is as a container for our collective memories to help us curate the stories we tell about ourselves. And that when governments try and tell us that one kind of art is degenerate or that another is decadent, well, that's the sound of the approaching footsteps of fascism. Christian Petzold's Transit plays games with our collective memory, our memories of World War II and occupied France, of the romance of Bogart and Ingrid Bergman in Casablanca, and uses those memories as a springboard for a tale about modern-day refugees and migrants. The X-Men have today done an incredibly brave thing. They have once again proved to humanity exactly why they need us, people like yourselves. The president sends his regards, as well as his heartfelt gratitude. And as for myself, I've never been prouder. Enjoy yourselves. You certainly deserve it. In fact, you all do. No more class at the end of the day. As the Avengers film made clear only a few weeks ago, we are in an endgame. This is not an endgame that dictates a cultural or ecological future, i.e. one that matters for any of us, because our comic book masters depend on the disconnection between our fantasy life and the life we live and breathe. 
This week, our particular end game is the X-Men, the franchise that not only invented the idea of the modern comic book movie, it also invented the idea of a franchise. Without the original X-Men from 2000, directed by the semi-disgraced Brian Singer, we would not have a Marvel Cinematic Universe featuring the Avengers, Spider-Man, etc. And we wouldn't be grieving today for Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man. Don't feel better about this. Part of the journey is the end. The X-Men, at least as far as movie audiences go, opened us up to the world of costumed heroes having deeper lives, stronger relationships, more to lose than we expected. The endless tussle between Professor X, originally Patrick Stewart and more recently James McAvoy, and Magneto, played by Ian McKellen and then Michael Fassbender, was a terrific competition between important ideas. Are the mutants in the story an equivalent to homosexual or transgender people, i.e. just people? Or are they a kind of other that requires partition, separation, special treatment in order to fulfil a different kind of destiny? At the time, this was a great allegory. But over the last 20 years or so, the franchise has done nothing except present it over and over again. The ideas haven't really developed. We're no further forward. And in fact, we're also poorer for all the wasted time. They're not kids anymore, Raven. And I care about their safety just as much as you do. Are you sure about that? Because we're taking bigger and bigger risks. And for what? Please, tell me it's not your ego. Being on the cover of magazines, getting a medal from the president. You like it, don't you? As opposed to being hunted and despised. Well, you know, actually, I do. It's all just a means to an end, Raven. What end is that? Keeping us safe. In Dark Phoenix, the relatively new second-generation X-Men, and I can't even begin to describe how the timelines had to separate to allow all this to happen, have made it to 1992 without wrecking all their relationships and have become thanks to their technology and their uniforms, somewhat iconic. When a space shuttle launch gets into trouble, beautifully photographed thanks to NASA, the X-Men are called into action, like International Rescue's Thunderbirds. In space, a mysterious pink and purple cloud manages to latch itself to X-Man Jean Grey, Sophie Turner from Game of Thrones, and fill her so full of galactic energy that she will never be the same again. Now it turns out that Jean was never the most stable mutant in the stable, and all this extra juice is letting her know how powerful she is, and how unhappy she is. It's all coming out at once. It scares me, because it feels good. It turns out that Captain Manipulative himself, Professor X, James McAvoy this time round, had already spent a decent part of her childhood inside her brain, keeping the darker aspects to one side so that the extraordinary power that she possesses would be sent forward rather than backward, as it were. When Miss Grey discovers the deceit and starts to feel all of this extra power at her fingertips, all heck starts to break loose. The arrival of a, a bunch of aliens determined to use Jean's power for their own ends is just the icing on the cake. Except that's actually the cake itself, in the form of the wonderful Jessica Chastain as the queen that steals every scene. Relying on a dodgy silver wig and her high-heeled Jimmy Choo's, Chastain delivers a ten cents in the dollar performance that is more committed than everyone else in the picture who has half an eye on the end of their own long-term contract. 
If you ever want to know who's going to die in a franchise picture, look back to when they signed on. Jennifer Lawrence as Raven and Michael Fassbender as Magneto in this film do a splendid job of delivering on their individual moments without ever expressing a commitment to an inner life or indeed anything outside of the contractual obligations they made at the beginning of this journey, a journey that's made them rich but seems to have shredded their souls. You should understand better than anyone that we're only ever one bad day away from them starting to see us as the enemy again. So what? We wear matching costumes and smile in pictures that to make everyone feel safe? That is a small price safe? to pay for keeping the peace. By risking our people to save theirs. Yes, yes. It's funny. I can't actually remember the last time you were the one risking something. And by the way, the women are always saving the men around here. You might want to think about changing the name to ex-women. It's not often that you come out of a massive entertainment event wondering what exactly it was you just watched, but I still don't know what was going on at crucial points in the story. Sometimes it's good when you don't know what's going on. It means the filmmakers aren't putting everything on a plate for you. And we have some examples coming up of films that refuse to pander in that regard. But Dark Phoenix genuinely can't keep its story straight from one minute to the next, and that's very sad. Dark Phoenix takes itself terribly seriously, and my final observation is that it's directed by Simon Kinberg, who has produced a few decent films, Elysium and The Martian are examples, and also steered the X-Men franchise since the First Class reboot in 2011. I say with absolutely no sincerity at all that after nearly 10 years of producing X-Men pictures, he has absolutely earned the right to have his first film as director be a $200 million comic book franchise picture. He's the perfect person to direct this boardroom-pleasing but audience-alienating piece of corporate content. But please, let this be the end of it. Stay out of my way. I'm sorry for what she did. But I can't let you go in there. You're always sorry, Charles. And there's always a speech. But nobody cares anymore. We do this here, now. They'll see us as monsters. Violent freaks fighting on the streets of New York. What did I tell you? Damn it, man. Your homeland will be gone. Everything you care about. Save it. Don't do this, Eric. A girl dies. Dark Phoenix is rated M for violence, offensive language, content that may disturb, and it is playing all over New Zealand now. Since childhood, I have been fascinated with language. I've invented my own. You invented an entire language? Yes. I made stories. Legends. Tell me a story in any language you want. J.R.R. Tolkien has a lot to answer for. Combined with easily accessible weed, his novels The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings turn 60s art students into fans of fantasy and allegory. While hundreds of European students manned the barricades and took their lead from Karl Marx and the Bader-Meinhof people, many more saw a similar world of inequality, misfortune, pain and persecution, and chose to absorb themselves in Middle-earth, Hobbiton, Elvishness, magic rings, etc., in this biography, Nicholas Holt plays the adult Tolkien, and his Western Front traumas are the framing devices for the film as a whole. 
while Tolkien defies all sense to try and find an old school friend in the trenches, it's clear that everything else about the war is defiant of him. Everyone except for his loyal Batman Sam, who sticks with him through thick and thin. While we are watching Mr Holt lie in the bloody pools of the Somme, our attention is directed back to his school days, his early romance, and we're reminded that his circumstances never stray beyond, as his ailing mother makes clear, impecunious. But he's a genius! It's clear through the film that Tolkien is gifted at languages, but it takes 20 years before that turns into an actual thing that he can make a living at. Class! My goodness, how oppressive is it? There are similarities between Tolkien the movie and last week's Rocket Man, the development of an artist against all the odds, overcoming a class struggle. And I'd like to put a word in here for Sir Derek Jacobi, who provides vital encouragement to our hero, but also uh, encouragement without an Oxbridge accent. But it also follows the tried-and-true formula of showing us all the moments in an artist's life that inspired the art we love, sometimes so literally that you have to laugh. My class is full, Mr Tolkien, full, with students who can translate Old English at least as quickly and skillfully as you, and have already had two terms to establish themselves. Good afternoon. Hello, Professor... Since childhood, I have been fascinated with language. Obsessed with it. I've invented my own. Full, complete languages. Look, this is... It's, it's everything. From the, the breast hoard. My heart, the treasure of the breast. And the drawings? I made stories. Legends. After all, what is language for? It's, it's not just the naming of things, is it? It's the lifeblood of a culture, a people. Yeah, exactly. Could you write 5,000 words on the influence of Norse elements in Gawain? Yes, absolutely. When would you like it by? This evening. I'm very fond of the actor Nicholas Holt, uh, but it's intriguing to report that for much of this film, he appears to be channeling his mentor, Hugh Grant, who he starred with as a child in About a Boy over two decades ago. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. Um, and Holt's already blown everyone away in George Miller's legendary Mad Max Fury Road, so he has nothing to prove uh, as an actor, except maybe as a leading man, and this is going to be the test. Well, I hope Tolkien, with the support of the excellent Lily Collins as his amour and Colm Meany as the priest who unsuccessfully guides his spiritual choices, proves that Holt has the chops to be a romantic leading man. Tell me a story. What? The story of Celador. No, I can't. Why not? When someone asks me to play the piano. That's a different thing altogether. Tell me a story. In any language you want. That'd be ridiculous. The legend of Celador. Uh, I'm not a performing monkey. It begins with the arrival of a proud and opinionated princess. Yes, you're right about that. She demands entertainment. Princess Celador is bored. Bored of cakes and muffins and exquisite no. china. She longs for another life. It's not a name. What? Something else. Celador, it's not a princess's name, it can't be. Celador. His place. 
Tolkien. The movie is directed by the Finnish director Dome Karukoski, whose last film was Tom of Finland, a biography of one of the most influential gay artists of the 20th century. And a strength of this biography is the emphasis on Tolkien's male affections, the fellowship that helped inspire the relationships in Lord of the Rings. There's good drama there, even if the structure of the film insists that we knock on the same old doors to get the same old answers. He's probably the greatest philologist, certainly of the Gothic language. He might have even been flattered. Of course he was flattered. Nobody's taken that book out of the library in 1,500 years. Well, actually, <laughs> I had it out last week. Oh, how did you find it? Oh, no, I don't want to spoil it for Tullers. Well, he won't finish it. He doesn't even know who wrote it. Please, we all just <laughs> shut up. It's not funny. Listen, Tolkien, you absolute clown. I mean, this is your chance, can't you see? Your Gothic professor is encouraging you to defect. What are you talking about? He's enticing you into his class. Sorry, sorry, sorry. He's right. You know, I can't just breeze into the philology department. Why not? Because I don't have a scholarship for a start. So are you telling me that the philology department don't give out scholarships? <laughs> yeah, for someone who happens to be a genius with languages. <laughs> Moron. <laughs> Tolkien is rated M for violence and should still be playing all over New Zealand now. My colleague Simon Morris conducted a lovely interview with Nicholas Holt about the film a few weeks ago, and you can hear it on our website. Just search Tolkien, and I'm sure you'll find it. There have been a few Where Do Artists Come From films recently, and one of the best is the German film Never Look Away. Based on the early life of the painter Gerhard Richter, the film tells a story that seems too full of coincidence to be true, and yet it is. Written and directed by the wonderfully named Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, the maker of the Academy Award-winning thriller about East Germany, The Lives of Others, Never Look Away is about Kurt, born in Dresden in the 1930s. He has a gift for drawing, and his lively aunt Elizabeth takes him as a young child to galleries in order to inspire him. When her liveliness turns into full-blown mental illness... We learned that the Nazis chose to sterilise and then exterminate anyone they didn't think worthy of treatment. The doctor, who orders her murder, manages to survive the war and return to his post as a leading gynaecologist whose daughter, and here's the remarkable coincidence, falls for young Kurt at art school. The brilliance of this film is that for most of its length, you think that this bit of plot is going to be the reason the film exists, and I suppose it is up to a point, but it's actually about much more than that. As Kurt, played by Tom Schilling, struggles to find a voice for his art, firstly in an East Germany that demands all art conform to the goals of socialist realism, and later in the West in the early 60s where everyone around him is looking for the one big idea that will make their name, we realise that so many of our artistic influences are subconscious. Unlike Tolkien, who goes to a performance of Wagner's Ring Cycle and we all go, aha, Kurt's development is much more subtle, all with this potential thriller plot in the background. Moderne Kunst. Ja, meine Damen und Herren, bis zur Machtergreifung der Nationalsozialisten hat es in Deutschland eine solche 
moderne Kunst gegeben. Das heißt also, wie es schon im Wesen dieses Wortes liegt, fast jedes Jahr eine andere. It's very enjoyable, even if it could do with a bit of trimming. There's really no excuse for Never Look Away to be as long as the average Avengers movie, just as there's no excuse for the average Avengers movie to be three hours long. Kurt's romantic partner in Never Look Away is played by the excellent Sophie Beer, who, along with Von Donnersmark, makes sure that we never forget that she too had an inner life and creative goals, even if she's not the centre of this particular story. Du heißt Elisabeth? Fitzt auch ein? Es ist jetzt aber nur noch vier Beter. Beer features in another German film that's out this week, Transit, by Christian Petzold, set in a weirdly familiar composite world where France has been invaded by German fascists and refugees and emigres are gathered in Marseille, hoping for safe passage out of Europe before the Nazis begin their cleansing. The setting and the doomed romance at its centre is deliberately reminiscent of Casablanca, but at the same time we're asked to look at the many hundreds of thousands of refugees who, in real life, are looking to come the other way and think about each and every one of their stories. I mentioned Transit in passing because it disappeared a bit during the festival last year and Auckland audiences have one more chance to see it on the big screen. I recommend it. Une semaine d'avance. Une semaine parce que s'il y a une rafle, je vais encore me retrouver les mains vides. Vous n'avez pas de titre de séjour. Mais je ne veux pas rester. Et ça, il faut pouvoir le prouver. Never Look Away is rated M for sex scenes, nudity and content that may disturb and it's playing in select cinemas now. Transit is rated M and is playing at the Academy Cinema in Auckland for a limited time. And that's our program for this week. I usually like to end the show with a sample from the soundtrack of one of the films we've featured, but uh, this week has been trickier than normal. During the closing credits of Never Look Away, my usual movie-going companion said, this is the music from The Leftovers, the superb and influential HBO miniseries about loss and grief. Sure enough, the credits revealed that the composer was one and the same, Max Richter, and that the tune we were listening to was one that he had written in 2002 and brought back to life for both projects. It's called November, and here it is, performed by Max Richter and Alexander Balanescu from an album called Memory House. I'm Dan Slevin, and you can find me on Twitter as at Dan Slevin, that's all one word, and there's more of me at rnz.co.nz forward slash widescreen, where you can find reviews of uh, other films that are in theatres at the moment, as well as interesting film and TV selections from local online streaming services. Simon is back next time, so please join him for more at the movies at the same time next week.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.